So this evening's inspiration and formation is being presented to us by Deacon Charles Luke. It is titled, Tasting Heaven, How the Old Testament Signs Help Us Understand the Gift of the Eucharist, which is uh, shared again by Deacon Charles Luke. So let me tell you a little bit about him. He is originally from Sheboygan and, and now is in uh, Kohler. He is a traditional deacon for the Archdiocese of Milwaukee and a seminarian at the St. Francis de Sales Seminary in Milwaukee. Prior to entering the seminary, Deacon Charles studied philosophy and theology at um, Franciscan University in Steubenville, and he's currently assigned to St. Leonard Parish in Muskego. So here's the best part. Uh, Deacon Luke is going to be ordained a priest this uh, May in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. So we have a lot to celebrate by having uh, Deacon Luke with us here this evening. So please welcome Deacon Luke. Thank you. I guess I could have pulled this out ahead of time. Here we are. What an absolute joy uh, to be with you here tonight, uh, kind of in many ways. Uh, a homecoming for me, Holy Name of Jesus is the church where I was baptized. Sheboygan is, is where I you know, grew up. Um, so a great opportunity just to make the trip up from the seminary tonight uh, to be with you. Uh, very grateful uh, to Kim for the invitation and for the wonderful introduction. I think that's the first time I've ever been introduced as a speaker uh, like that, so that's kind of fun. Kim shared that I'll, I'll be ordained a priest um, this coming May, and so if before, before I launch into the talk, if you don't mind, I just would like to share a word about that reality and about the seminary. Um, so my journey to the priesthood in many ways uh, began when I was very young uh, through the encouragement of so many people that I knew in the parish here, um, in any, any number of different places, just faithful Catholics who planted the seed early, who asked that question, did you ever think about becoming a priest? You know, and it, Eight years old. It's like, oh, sure, whatever. Um, <laughs> but those those things do matter, and, and little invitations um, can mean uh, quite a bit. I'm going to be ordained this coming May as part of a class of nine. We'll have nine new priests in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. The last time the Archdiocese had an ordination class this large was when Father Don Hying, if some of you know that name, was ordained a priest, Father Don Hying, now Bishop Hying of the Diocese of Madison. And so it's been nearly 40 years in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee since we've had an ordination class this size. It's a great joy. It's a great joy for the seminary. And at the same time, as we enter you know, into this season of Lent, I would really um, just submit to you the, the prayer request to continue to pray for vocations here in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. The thing about ordaining nine seminarians to be priests is that then they're no longer seminarians. Um, and while this is you know, a, a great gift to the Archdiocese to have an ordination class of nine, um, it's really going to change the dynamic of seminary life. One-fifth of all diocesan seminarians are being ordained this year. Uh, so in order to continue to promote a culture of vocations here in the Archdiocese, I just make the request to you in your prayers throughout this Lent, um, yet to keep in mind and in prayer um, you know, this request to our Lord that he would send many, many priests uh, to serve in our diocese. All right, to the talk. Um, tasting heaven, the Old Testament, and what does it have to do with the Eucharist? We're all gathered here tonight over food. 
and food is kind of the, the uh, avenue uh, under which I wanted to dive into this talk tonight. Because food plays, perhaps surprisingly, a very important role in God's plan of salvation. And what I want to do tonight is to walk through a portion of the Old Testament, more specifically the book of Exodus, and look at how various kinds of food become a part of God's plan for the salvation of Israel, for our salvation. I think understanding these um, can help us grow in our appreciation of the Eucharist, our devotion, our knowledge, and our love for the gift that we receive every Sunday. So to dive in, now that we have enjoyed dinner, I want to turn our attention from the food that satisfies our stomachs to the food which is the bread that came down from heaven, the bread which truly satisfies. This bread which is the Holy Eucharist. And where I want to start with the exploration of that is with this very Lenten theme of the Exodus. Exodus, the second book of the Bible, is the story which narrates Israel's departure out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the wilderness, on a journey to the promised land, on a journey in which they encounter God at Mount Sinai. You'll recall the Exodus is a journey of 40 years. And this set of 40 becomes the dominant theme for our celebration of the season of Lent. Lent, which we observe for 40 days, is no accident that we also speak of it as a journey. Like how often do we say our Lenten journey? What we do is we recall the 40 years of wandering by Israel in the wilderness prior to their entrance into the promised land. And I think if we look at our own lives, we recognize that each one of us is on a journey. We're on the journey of our spiritual lives. We're on a journey to a promised land. A promised land which does not have its destination in a geographical location, but in heaven. And, as such, all of us are on this journey. It's a journey that at times seems to be through a wilderness. That wilderness you know, may be different for each one of us. Like, what, what is that wilderness in each of our lives? But all of us go through it. All of us are, are in it in some sense. And Lent is kind of this privileged opportunity to lean into that, to go through the wilderness towards an encounter with God, ultimately towards our true promised land. So Lent is a journey. Exodus is a journey. What do you need if you're going on a journey? Food! <laughs> and so if we're attentive to the narrative of the book of Exodus, we can see that it has a lot to do with food. And food is, as strange as it may seem, one of the principal ways in which God works out the salvation of his people. So to exhibit A, the Passover lamb. A quick recap of the situation at the beginning of the book of Exodus. The um, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living in Egypt, and they're there because there was a famine in their own land, and so they made this journey to Egypt. They're dwelling in Egypt where you know, God had, had raised up Joseph to be really the second in command in all the kingdom of Egypt. And as the book of Exodus opens, Joseph has just died. And so now God's people are living in Egypt, living in a foreign land, and the um, situation begins to turn against them. We're told that, that there's a new pharaoh who didn't know anything of Joseph, and he doesn't know the history of God's people dwelling in Egypt. 
And he be begins to become jealous of these people. He begins to become fearful of these people. And so he begins to persecute these people. First by enslaving them, forcing them to work for him, be a part of his architectural projects. Um, but then also in, in more uh, severe, drastic ways. And we hear this narrative in the book of Exodus about how Pharaoh commands all of the firstborn children of the Israelites to be slain. It's because he's fearful of these people, and he's fearful that they're going to supplant his kingdom. And so in the midst of this really dire time for God's people, God raises up Moses. And the, the book of Exodus really begins the narrative of the life of Moses. God hears his people's cry. He hears their labor underneath you know, the, the oppression of Pharaoh. And he decides to intervene, to act. To act by calling one man, Moses, to be his chosen instrument to deliver his people. So God calls Moses, first inviting Moses out to go into the wilderness himself. It's not accidental that Moses encounters God in the wilderness before he can lead others to encounter God in the wilderness. But God speaks to Moses and sends Moses on this mission to Pharaoh to bring his people Israel out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And how does God decide ultimately to set his people free. It's through food. It's the Passover lamb. And it's through liturgy. Because the Passover is also a liturgical act. It's also a sacrifice. And so here in the book of Exodus, we have God's people being set free through food and through liturgical sacrifice. Sound familiar? And so this sets out for us almost like a pattern of, of how we're going to walk through the Old Testament tonight. Because it's the same God who acts in the New Testament as in the Old. And as God brings deliverance and salvation to his people in the Old Testament, there are certain patterns which we can see there, then repeated in the New. And one of these is God's... Uh, chosen style, if you will, of bringing deliverance to his people. So God sets his people free through this series of plagues in the book of Exodus. And as a sidebar, I think it's, it's helpful to note that, um, let me put it this way, it's, it's sometimes hard to read the account of those plagues in Exodus. And we ask the question, how can an all-good and all-loving God uh, rain down really horrible destruction on the people of Egypt? But one of the things that's helpful, I think, in looking at these plagues is all of the plagues are divine warfare. Because all of the plagues are carried out against a particular pagan god of the Egyptians. So the Egyptians had a god of the Nile River. Nile River turns to blood. The Egyptians had a sun god. The sun is blacked out. The land is covered in darkness. And the Egyptians saw Pharaoh himself as a god. And so this last plague, which is in some ways hard to wrap our heads around, which is, is the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son, as, as, we act, we ask, as we ask, you know, how could God will that? It's important to bear in mind that the message God is communicating there is, there is no other God. All the idols must fall before the one true God. Okay. So God is going to strike down all of the firstborn in the land. How is Israel to be, to be saved? And it's through this liturgy, the Passover liturgy. 
God gives to Moses a very detailed set of instructions of how this liturgy is to be carried out. First, you have to select an unblemished male lamb. Step one. Step two, sacrifice the lamb. Step three, spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintel of every house, every house where the Israelites resided. Step four, eat the lamb. Step five, keep the Passover as a day of remembrance. So we know the story in the book of Exodus. The Israelites celebrate the Passover. God passes over the land of Egypt and strikes down all of the firstborn of the Egyptians. And the narrative of the book of Exodus makes specific mention. It says God executes judgment on the gods of Egypt. That's what's going on there. And this act is the last straw that finally allows Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave Egypt, to leave slavery and begin their journey to a promised land. And a detail not to miss is that it happens through the Passover. So as I said, in God's unfolding of salvation, the way God works in the Old Testament sets a pattern which allows us to see how God works in the New Testament. And so what happens when we read this Passover story in a Christological key? In other words, when we read this story bearing in mind the passion, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thinking of the story of Jesus Christ, we see a lamb eaten with bread, an innocent and perfect lamb, call him the Lamb of God, who is slaughtered in the midst of the whole congregation of Israel, whose blood is spread horizontally and vertically, which we mark our homes with. The effect of this is that we are brought from slavery, out of our captivity, into freedom, into relationship with God. So there's a theologian in the 1300s, you might have heard of him, his name is St. Thomas Aquinas, who says that the Paschal Lamb is the preeminent or chief figure of the Eucharist contained in the Old Testament. And for St. Thomas, it's because you can see three different layers of correspondence between the Passover and the Eucharist. The first one is that in the Passover, you, you not only have the, the eating of a lamb as part of, of meal, that meal was also accompanied by the eating of bread. And so there's this aspect in which a lamb is eaten along with bread. We also see, in both instances, a perfect, spotless, or in the case of Jesus, we could say sinless, lamb who dies for the deliverance of a people. And a lamb, too, who by shedding his blood affects deliverance. So between the Passover lamb and the Eucharist, there's a similarity, both in terms of the sign meaning that it's a meal eaten under the form of bread. In terms of what it is, um, it is this sacrifice of a lamb, where we kind of understand Jesus in this um, kind of comparative sense to be a lamb, and the Gospels tell us he's the lamb of God. And in terms of the effect, that the shedding of the lamb's blood and the eating of the meal affects deliverance from sin. And there's more. Because if we read the, the, uh, the passion narratives in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that Jesus is instituting 
the Eucharist, and the Last Supper, which occurs on the Feast of Passover. Jesus is very intentionally taking this liturgical theme and instituting the Eucharist right in the midst of it. And if we think about what would be going on in Jerusalem as Jesus is sitting with his disciples eating this Passover meal, if you go up the block, not even a quarter mile from the upper room, the space where Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples, you get to the Temple Mount. And it would have been on the Temple Mount, on the Feast of Passover, where at the time of Jesus, something approximating a quarter of a million lambs were slaughtered every year at Passover for the Jewish Feast of Passover. And so this is the context, is that Jesus is sitting at table at the Last Supper, calling himself the Passover lamb, giving his disciples this feast, this gift of the Eucharist, and all around him is this Passover context. And so I think if we, we place ourselves in that scene and we imagine that scene, it's nearly impossible to miss the Exodus connection. And what this does is it helps us to see that what God did in the Old Testament for the people of Israel, he does now for us through the Holy Eucharist. He sets us free from idols. He sets us free from sin. He feeds us, gives, him, gives us himself, and ultimately leads us to our salvation. Last point on this. In, in case you think that I'm just making up all these connections. Um, if you go to the, uh, the Easter Vigil, at the beginning of the Easter Vigil, there's um, an Easter proclamation that is sung. It's also called the Exaltet. Um, and this takes place at the beginning of the Easter Vigil liturgy. And this Easter proclamation contains this line in it. So again, this is Easter Sunday, or Easter, well, it's Holy Saturday night. Context, passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it says, quote, These then are the feasts of Passover, in which is slain the Lamb, the one true Lamb, whose blood anoints the doorposts of believers. So the point being that the doorposts that are marked are not so much physical doorposts anymore, but the doorposts of our own hearts. It's the gateway to our own hearts that are marked as we receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ through the Holy Eucharist. And if we remember in the narrative of Exodus that it's the blood on the doorposts which spared Israel's firstborn from being destroyed. There's a phrase that is sometimes used to describe the Eucharist to call it the medicine of immortality. And it's this idea that we're spared from everlasting eternal death because we're given the life of God in our souls through the Eucharist. Back to Moses. When last we saw Moses, he was eating a meal, Passover meal. It was his last night in Egypt, and he was getting ready to lead the whole congregation of Israel out of Egypt um, to where? Um, to the Promised Land. You know, I, I've done this once before, is if you get out Google Maps or any similar sort of maps and um, you look up a walking route from, I think last time I looked it up, I was looking at Cairo in Egypt, and you look to see how long it would take to walk from there to the city of Jerusalem, it's something like six days. That's how long Google Maps says this trip should take. Uh, so evidently there was a detour somewhere along the way. <laughs> Uh, 
So God delivers Israel through the Passover, leads them out of Egypt, sends this pillar of fire to go in front of them and a cloud to guide them. There's this amazing scene where God delivers Israel at the Red Sea and drowns Israel's enemies, the Egyptians, behind them. And almost immediately upon finishing the crossing of the Red Sea, the whole people of Israel begin to complain against God and against Moses because they don't have food. Kind of need that on a journey, especially when the journey turns out to not be six days, but a little bit longer. So God hears their prayer, just as God you know, heard their prayer as they were being oppressed in slavery in Egypt. God hears their need. This is an instructive point for us, right? That, that God knows our needs. Um, God cares for our needs. And God sends food. And so in the Exodus story, this is the manna. That God rains down bread from heaven, which, by the way, I know we often, we often think of the manna, right? As it's, you know, it's, it's regular bread, right? Um, it's regular bread that falls to earth and sustains Israel as they're walking through the wilderness. Um, but it's important, I think, not to miss the fact that the man is also a miracle. Because bread normally just doesn't fall from the sky. Uh, so the manna is a miraculous food, and um, there's some documentation um, from some Jewish sources, actually, you know, this is so within the first and second century AD, Jewish rabbis who are writing about um, their own story, right, writing about the Exodus, um, they are actually the first ones to use the phrase the bread of angels. And they use it to describe the manna. And we know that phrase. Um, as it comes to us in Latin, that's panis angelicus. So we can all, you know, probably hear in our heads, pani, you know, you know how it goes. Um, but I think it's really actually kind of insightful that the first reference to the bread of the angels refers to the manna. And the idea for these Jewish rabbis was um, that God gave the manna to the angels in heaven and then it was the angels who were, because angels are God's messengers, so then it was angels who brought the manna um, down to earth to Israel. So that's Jewish commentary from the first and second century. Um, you know, that's not in the Bible. You know, we're not bound to believe that that's the way that this happened. But I think it's, it's a kind of insightful historical commentary. So I offer that to you. The manna is also, we're told in the book of Exodus, suited to every taste. So I think it's, it's kind of interesting. It's like, well, what did the manna taste like? Um, apparently, it had a different taste to different people. Um, and it's, it's hard to know what to make of that detail in the text. But what I think it tells us spiritually is that God knows each one of our needs. And so that as God feeds us with the bread of angels, which is not the manna, but is the Eucharist. We'll have more on that connection in a minute. That God knows our needs. That God knows the spiritual needs of each one of us, of how we personally need to be sustained by God's love, how we need to, to be fortified through the wilderness of our lives, through our particular struggles. And see, in the Eucharist, like, that gift of God suited to our particular taste. Another point on the manna. So the manna is what we all remember, right? It, it steals the show, so to speak. But if we go back and we read the story of Exodus, um, manna is not the only miracle of food that God sends to his people while they're wandering. We're told that the bread, the manna, falls every morning. And then every evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And so here again, there's this sign that God gives, which is both bread 
and flesh. It's bread and meat. It's, it's a double sign. Um, and even though we typically you know, default to remembering the manna in the story, I think it's helpful uh, to recall that the two go together, and they're part of the same miracle. They're the miracle of God providing for his people on their journey through the wilderness. So here again, what happens when we reread this story in a Christological key? I think it looks like John 6. John 6, Jesus is delivering the, the bread of life discourse. And if we look at that text again, just bearing this context in mind, this, the context of the manna. So in John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed a multitude of people with a miracle of bread. That's the feeding of the 5,000. Even if it's just ordinary bread, still a miracle. That scene in John chapter 6 is followed by Jesus walking on water, which is an easy scene to miss because I think so often we think, John 6, it's all about the Eucharist. And there's this little story snuck right in the middle of that chapter, which is Jesus walking on water. And there's a parallel here, which I think it's important to catch, and that's the parallel to the crossing of the Red Sea. Jesus doesn't just pass through the sea. He is walking on the sea. And in the ancient world, the sea was always associated with the gods. Recall Poseidon, Neptune, but also all of Israel's neighbors, all of the pagan nations surrounding Israel would have had their own version of these gods that ruled the sea. And so what we see Jesus do in walking on the sea is he walks all over them. There's a reason that the disciples are terrified when they see Jesus walking on the sea. It's not just because it's something unusual, but because they're seeing the Lord of heaven revealed in his glory. And recall what I said about the plagues of Egypt being divine warfare, about God sending plagues on Egypt to show that the gods of the Egyptians were not the one true God. I think we see something very similar in John chapter 6 as Jesus walks on the sea. So then what follows? So Jesus feeds 5,000, he walks on the sea across the water, and then he says this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Reading in the context of the book of Exodus, what's the bread that comes down from heaven? It's the manna. It's bread which is miraculous, bread which is from heaven, bread which is suited to every taste, which is given with flesh, but remains just physical bread for physical life here on earth, for journey to a physical, geographical just destination. Jesus is upping the ante here. This is not the manna. This is new manna. This is bread not for super, sorry, not for natural life, but for supernatural life. It is food for an exodus journey that leads not to a geographical destination, but to a heavenly, eternal one. last points on the manna here. When does this happen? John 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, opens the chapter with this remark. 
It says, now the Passover feast was at hand. So there again is Jesus giving us a Eucharistic sign right smack in the middle of the Passover liturgical feast. Never enough on John 6, um, but perhaps enough on John 6 for the moment. We'll hear, uh, I think, five weeks in a row of John 6 uh, in the month of June and the beginning of July this summer um, as it comes up in the lectionary cycle at Mass. So in this year of Eucharistic revival in the church, um, the lectionary uh, for the Sunday Mass helps us out, and we'll, we'll get all of Jesus' bread of life discourse and his Eucharistic teaching for five Sundays in a row um, coming this summer. So if you are asking yourself in the middle of the summer, why is Father Norby preaching about the Eucharist all the time all of a sudden? Father Norby, maybe he's not here. I thought he was here. He went. He went. Okay. I'm sure he preaches on the Eucharist a lot. But if you hear him preach on the Eucharist for five or six weeks in a row this summer, this will be why. Back to Moses. So far, we have traced how God delivered his people from slavery, delivered the firstborn from death in Egypt through the Passover liturgy. We have also seen how God provided miraculous bread for his people on their journey to a promised land. Along the way, we have noted how God has been using the Exodus to deliver his people from the worship of false gods. In fact, uh, the whole reason for the Exodus in the first place um, was so that the Israelites could go and worship God. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 includes this line. This is the first time that Moses goes to Pharaoh, and God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And so there's an expressed liturgical orientation to the book of Exodus. It's a way of saying that Exodus is a book about liturgy. As much as it's a story about being set free from slavery to being delivered into a promised land, it's also a story of being set free from false worship for true worship. It's a story about being set free for the worship of God. And we could draw a parallel to our own lives as we think about the reality of sin and the reality of freedom. You know, I think it's very popular in the world to think that freedom is this ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want. Um, but the Christian idea of, of freedom is, is not so much that it's licensed to do whatever, but to do that thing which is right. Um, and it's in doing this thing that is right that we're truly set free. And the effect of sin in our lives so often is only to tie us down, to burden us, or, or that's its effect. That's how it plays itself out in our lives. Um, so to be set free from sin uh, is, in a very real sense, to be set free to worship God. So this raises a question, then, which is, if God is setting his people free in order to worship him, how did God expect to be worshipped? We see a misguided attempt early on, on the part of Aaron. That would be the little golden calf incident. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't work out too well. But it's a question that is answered by God's revelation to Moses on Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, yes, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and that's what we remember. That's uh, you know the, the part that steals the show, is Moses coming down off the mountain with the stone tablets. But if we read the text, we'll see that everything from chapter 23 to chapter 40 in the book of Exodus is all about liturgy. So Exodus is 40 chapters long, 
And in the first half of the book of Exodus is where we get this dramatic narrative about leaving Egypt and all of the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and the wandering in the wilderness and the manna. And then we get to chapter 23 and all of a sudden it's about altars and sacrifice and bulls and blood and pouring things out and all, all of these detailed, detailed, detailed sacrifices that God asks Moses and acts the people to offer to him. We hear about the tabernacle, vestments, the ordination of priests, and that gets you through about chapter 40 in uh, the book of Exodus, and then you turn the page and you get to the book of Leviticus. Um, the book of Leviticus is where most, um, most attempts to read the Bible through cover to cover um, end. <laughs> Some, somewhere in the middle of the book of Leviticus, because the book of Leviticus just continues um, you know, this description where it's all about liturgy, it's all about sacrifice, it's all about priesthood. I like to say the book of Leviticus should be every seminarian's favorite book. Sometimes it's not. Strange. So liturgy worship is very, very important. Um, and if we think about you know, the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, these being you know, the Torah, um, the Pentateuch, we, we call them as well, is, is Leviticus, Leviticus comes right in the center. So right in the center of God's law is this detailed set of instructions about liturgy, about how God's people should worship him. So, bracketing Leviticus for a moment and going back into the book of Exodus, Moses, Aaron, and all the elders of Israel go up Mount Sinai and they're shown a vision of God in his heavenly court. They have this vision of heaven on Mount Sinai. And the text says that they ate and drank with God, which is probably a way of saying that these elders of Israel are now in a relationship with God. It's like how we use the word companion in English. The word companion comes from two Latin words, cum, which means with, and pan, which is our word for bread. So your companions are the ones that you have bread with, which is another way of saying it's that's the people you're in relationship with. And so when we see Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel go up Mount Sinai and have this vision of God in heaven and share this meal with God, I think what that's telling us is that um, Moses, Aaron, the elders of Israel, and by extension all of Israel, are now entering into a relationship with God. And so on this mountain, you know, in being shown this vision of heaven, that comes with a set of instructions. Because God tells Moses, immediately following this vision, to construct the tabernacle, which at first is just a very large tent, but this large tent will later be enlarged by, well, King David will put the plans together, but by King Solomon, and this will become the temple. So the tabernacle um, is patterned on the vision of heaven given to Moses, and then this gets copied to become the temple. And um, what's striking is that um, you know this this tabernacle, this large tent, um, is set up by Moses in the midst of Israel's camp as they're wandering through the wilderness. And it's in this tabernacle, then, that the cloud of glory, which is God's presence <laughs> among his people, comes down and resides. So this tabernacle becomes God's dwelling place on earth. God also gives instructions for what will go into this tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand, which is a menorah, and the table for the bread of the presence. What is that? 
And God tells Moses to build all of these things after the pattern that was shown to him on the mountain. And this is important because it tells us on a very fundamental what liturgy is. Liturgy is always done in imitation of what is done in heaven. And it's why even today there's a pattern so often to our churches. It's because our churches in some manner copy the temple, which copy the tabernacle, which are copies of the sanctuary in heaven. It's why then when you walk into a church, you should think, ah, I'm walking into heaven. It's because the one is modeled on the other. So maybe that's a little bit of a digression. However, um, if we look at what goes into the tabernacle in the, the book of Exodus here, um, and we could talk more about the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstand maybe another time, but um, back to this table for the bread of the presence. What is that? And I'm curious about it because, again, it relates to food. I get curious about things like that in the middle of Lent. <laughs> so Exodus 25, um, God says to Moses, Make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide. This, by the way, is my cubit right there. There it is. Uh, and half a cubit high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold mounting around it. And make its plates and dishes pure gold, as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of offerings. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. The bread of the presence, what is that? Well, if we keep reading through uh, the book of Leviticus and we don't give up on our plan to read all the way through the Bible, we'll see in the book of Leviticus that the priests of Israel would lay out 12 loaves of bread each week on this table. And that bread would remain in the tabernacle all week in front of the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And it was kind of a symbolic way of recalling all of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you had 12 loaves of bread for 12 tribes of Israel. And what was symbolically represented there is all of Israel gathered before the presence of God. Furthermore, we might recall that the scene with Moses, Aaron, and the elders of Israel eating with God on Mount Sinai is the event which immediately precedes the bread of the presence being introduced. And so what this suggests is that this bread, this bread of the presence as it's called, functioned as a memorial of the meal with God on the mountain. And thus, as a sign of God's communion with his people. We can also note that in addition to bread, there are pitchers and bowls on this table, suggesting that the bread of the presence is more accurately the bread and wine of the presence. Presence, what is, what is that word doing there? Why, not, why don't we just say bread? In Hebrew, this bread is called lechem ha-panin. I don't speak Hebrew, but I read that in a book somewhere. Panim is the word for face, so this bread could be called more literally the bread of the face, or even more suggestively, the bread of the face of God. What can this tell us about the Eucharist? Obviously, there are some parallels right on the surface of the text in the book of Exodus. But what is more striking, actually, is um, the liturgical practice of the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. We have remarkably good historical documentation, which attests to the fact that at the time of Jesus, there were three pilgrimage feasts in Jerusalem every year. So three times a year, there would be these massive gatherings in Jerusalem with pilgrims from all over the world. 
Passover was one of those. So we have these three pilgrimage feasts throughout the year. And during each of these feasts, the priests of the temple would bring this table out of the holy place in the temple. When all of the pilgrims had gathered in the temple courtyard, and they would hold up this table with the bread of the presence on it, presumably. And they would say to the pilgrims, Behold God's love for you. Really striking. And of course, you and I cannot and do not go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship in this way. The temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. The temple that you and I worship is not this temple, but the temple of the body of Jesus Christ. Think about all that the temple was. It was the dwelling place of God, the place of sacrifice. In Jesus Christ, all of that is located in him. He is the dwelling place of God on earth as true God, true man. And his body is the place of sacrifice because it's in his sacrifice for each one of us that he redeems the world. And so you and I do not need to go to Jerusalem to behold the love of God for us. We need to go to Mass. We need to go to Mass to behold the bread of the face of God, which is held up before us in the moment of consecration. We need to go to Mass to behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. We need to go to Mass to eat the true Passover Lamb, whose blood delivers us from death, who sets us free from slavery. We need to go to Mass to receive the bread of the angels, that true manna which will sustain us on our exodus from this world to our true promised land, which is in heaven. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you.